Hello and welcome to the Eating Disorder Therapist podcast. This is a podcast to help you find peace with food and overcome disordered eating. And I'm Harriet Frew, aka the Eating Disorder Therapist. And I'm so excited to share with you all kinds of stories, tips, information and guest interviews to help you on your journey in finding peace with food. So thank you so much for listening today. Before I launch into this week's episode, I just want to say a big thank you to everyone who is listening. The Eating Disorder Therapist podcast is zooming up the mental health Apple and Spotify charts. And we have been at number 48 this week in the mental health charts, which I am so pleased about. So I just want to say a big thank you to everyone who's listening. And I really appreciate everyone who's following, who's writing supportive comments, and who is subscribing. So thank you so much. So today it's me and I'm going to talk about something that is really common in eating disorder recovery. And this is being ambivalent about change, meaning being in two minds. It's so common that people will come into therapy and say, I want you to change my head. I want you to change the way I think about food but I'm really scared of letting go of the eating disorder. So there's like one part of them that is like desperate, desperate, desperate to change and could probably write a very eloquent, rational essay about all the reasons why it would be helpful to give up the eating disorder. But there's another part of them that feels contrary to that and really wants to keep hold of it. And it can feel really, really confusing because it's almost like two parts of you are pulling you in different directions. And it can be quite agonizing because of you can just feel all over the place and it's really, really hard to feel at peace. Now, this is as well one of my favorite topics as I feel it's central to the recovery process because as well, it's very uncommon that people come into eating disorder recovery and are like yeah I'm ready I want to get on the path tell me what to do off we go often the really first crucial part of the recovery work is exploring people's ambivalence helping them work through that helping them to have this like psychological view of their eating problem and that almost opens a door to possible change so You can feel torn in half by this ambivalence. You can feel that you are pulled in opposing directions. It can feel really, really agonizing. So a part of you might be absolutely fed up with the eating problem. It's preoccupying you all the time. It's leaving you exhausted. It means that you can't go out socially. Your moods are all over the place. And basically, it's robbing you of a fulfilling life. But whilst all of that is 100% true, There's another part of you that is extremely apprehensive about letting it go. And this can be for a multitude of reasons. And many of these are not very obvious to begin with. It might feel really, really confusing. But ultimately, the reason why an eating disorder is hard to let go of, or the thought of letting go of it can feel very hard, is that ultimately disordered eating and eating disorder is a coping strategy. And this doesn't mean that it's a logical, thought out and planned strategy. It's much more likely to be an unconscious reaction to stresses and things going on in your life. No one would normally plan or intend to be using food or controlling weight in the way you are now. It's just probably kind of happened. So today I'm going to talk about three main barriers to change and recovery 
and how to go about addressing these so you can begin to move away from the illness towards good mental and physical health. So number one, numbing and distracting from feelings. If you start to change your eating by restricting what you eat, cutting out a food group, counting calories, weighing food, or following a brand new shiny plan, then you're essentially having something to really focus on in an intense way. And you can't help but become more preoccupied with food when you're in a dieting phase, as your brain will demand glucose and make you think about food a lot of the time. And this is a physiological survival mechanism that's very difficult to override. But once you start focusing on food or weight or body image or how many steps you've taken, your thoughts and feelings become very directed towards these behaviors. You're going to start caring much less about other things going on around you. For example, a friend not responding to a text or an argument with your mum is probably going to matter much less significantly as you're increasingly directing your energy towards food and body thoughts. And sometimes people almost describe when they're in that slightly sort of restrictive eating phase, almost like kind of being in a bubble where you are a bit detached from the world. And it feels quite safe in a way because you just feel like you care much less about everything else. So often disordered eating initially is perhaps triggered from an outside external source. So it might be something like a relationship fallout. It might be a bereavement. It might be some kind of trauma or experience bullying or exam stress. And I think as well, it's worth saying that it doesn't necessarily have to be some big, massive event that was kind of really overwhelming and disrupted your life. It can be that, but often it can be more those kind of micro additions that we're dealing with in life, those kind of micro stresses that kind of accumulate and build. And I think particularly as well, when we're coming out of this pandemic, many, many people have found the isolation and the anxiety of the pandemic to be extremely stressful. And it's disrupted people's lives in a way that we couldn't ever imagined. So I think, again, you know, even if you feel like something big hasn't happened, really acknowledge and recognize the micro stresses that may have added up and could be really impacting you. So it's very easy in our culture to project our negative thoughts and feelings onto the body. So rather than feeling maybe rejection, sadness, anxiety, guilt, or pain, we kind of put it all onto our bodies. We kind of think, okay, if I change my body, if I lose weight, if I control my food, I'm going to feel better. So maybe as well, when your eating disorder or disordered eating was triggered, maybe you didn't have a safe place or a person to talk to or get support with your feelings. You know, maybe other people around you were going through a lot of stress as well. So often it's understandably a survival strategy to kind of get us through and food, whether it be restricting it, emotionally eating on it, binge eating on it, it might have been the only solace and comfort a difficult time and maybe focusing on counting calories, blocking out the pain so we didn't really have to fully feel it. I think, again, this is often quite an unconscious coping strategy. No one is really thinking, oh, I'm using food as a way to feel better. It's something we often fall into. So it's often not conscious. You might not even know how you feel beneath the eating problem because you become so preoccupied and focused with the thoughts and feelings generated around the symptoms. You know, it often feels all about food, all about your body. 
But, you know, if we strip some of that away, there's probably quite a lot going on underneath. So, for example, if you're feeling guilty for eating that extra biscuit or anxious for your way in tomorrow morning, your head is buzzing with these disordered eating thoughts. But the underlying pain, maybe of the breakup, the bullying, the stress around the pandemic, it's all kind of numbed because if you're focusing on food and body image. So how do you even begin to deal with this? So beginning to access the underlying emotions can be a daunting and scary prospect. You might think, I don't even know what's underneath. And it might also be hard to see the wood for the trees as the symptoms have become so entrenched and genuinely stressful. So what's often helpful is to get your symptoms more under control first. And this might include some weight restoration if you need to do it, or it might involve reducing binge eating or purging or starting to distance your relationship from the weighing scales. And you might need to get some support with that. Sometimes it's quite tricky to be able to make those first few steps on your own. But once the fog begins to clear, you begin begin to touch base with the underlying feelings. So this can be painful work and is often done best for the safety of therapy. However, it can also be talking to people in your life that you really trust, people that are good at listening, people that can just really be there for you, the kind of people who are really accepting and non-judgmental and encouraging. And I know in my own recovery, you know, talking to some of my closest friends was incredibly healing. I did go on to have therapy as well at some point, but I would say the conversations I had with my friends probably made up and had an equal impact in my overall kind of healing. So in my own recovery, My core pain was about not feeling good enough deep down and deep feelings of unworthiness. It was feeling I was unacceptable and as I pleased others, and there was a deep sense of shame about who I was as a person. And I had internalized messages put onto me that were not mine to hold, but because I'd heard them again and again, I couldn't shake them off because they felt so true to the core So I guess that's what I'd heard them from people that were really important to me and who I loved. So I coped by trying to be everything to everyone, being whoever the person who I was with needed me to be in that moment. And not even really knowing that I was doing this, it was kind of like a survival strategy. It was an underlying coping strategy to protect me from potential rejection. So for me, the eating disorder, like or beneath the eating disorder, it was a way to deal with conflicting feelings that I couldn't allow myself to feel in an open and honest or direct way. Restriction and control of food and weight felt good and pure and right. Binging and purging felt completely in contrast to that. And I felt really disgusted, wrong, bad. And it was a way to often express my feelings of rage, upset, anger, guilt. Some of these feelings that I felt in my relationships that I had no permission or acceptance to share. So for me, it was a survival strategy. It was an unhealthy coping strategy. And, you know, it wasn't a helpful thing. It wasn't really solving the problem. So for me, a lot of my healing was about getting in touch with those underlying emotions, beginning to be able to give myself permission to have them and to be able to express them safely. And that was a bit of a journey, to be honest with you. It wasn't a process that I particularly enjoyed and relished at times. I probably felt a lot worse before I felt better. However, it was a really important 
part of the healing journey and one that I couldn't shortcut to get to the place that I am today. So if you're feeling daunted by hearing this, please don't. You know, you can heal too. Healing is possible for everybody. And sometimes it's just taking the baby step. You don't need to open the door to all your feelings on day one. It can be done incrementally and you can learn to build trust and to deal with things a bit more a bit at a time. So that's the first one, numbing and escaping from feelings. The second reason that people often use disordered eating as a coping strategy is linked to gaining a sense of purpose and achievement. So diet culture is powerful and relentless with its messages. It's good in inverted commas to be thin, to control your weight and to shrink your body to smaller proportions. This is sadly celebrated as some kind of feat or achievement, a golden trophy of honor that sets you aside from others. Thin is idealized and objectified and put on the pedestal of worthiness. Now, of course, it does not work deep down. And even if you achieve a goal weight or a thinner body, anyone who has walked this road will tell you hand on heart that this hasn't given them the magical fix to self-esteem that they have longed so dearly for. Because once you achieve that initial goal, the goalposts inevitably move again and nothing ever feels enough. But although this doesn't work as a lasting and soul-enriching strategy, it does offer fleeting glimmers of self-worth. In Western culture, weight loss tends to invite, wow, you've lost weight. And it's a badge of honor for succeeding at something that very few people can actually do. And if you're not feeling that great about yourself deep down, the initial compliments or attention can be absorbed rapidly in the way that you've got water when thirsty for hours in the desert. So people are born in genetically smaller and thinner bodies. And although, and this includes myself, I'm not objectively thin. I just have, I'm within the normal BMI range. That's where my set point is. And I know BMI has its limitations. I fully take that on board. But I guess I just want to say that if you have eating and body image issues and you're within a normal BMI range, of course, it's probably still way easier to deal with all these things than if you are naturally in a larger body, if you're naturally taller, if you're naturally bigger boned, if you're naturally more muscly. So if you are kind of naturally have your set point within the normal range, you have considerably less burden and pressure to bear from society. So I guess that's what's called as well, kind of thin privilege that we see on most social media. If you're born into a larger body, you probably feel the pressure to lose weight, but often realistically, you're going to be going against your body's natural happy place. So this is not to permit poor health or encourage people to become very overweight, but it's a genuine acknowledgement that our bodies are already different. And I think that's just so important as part of the healing process to try and gain this kind of radical acceptance of the body we are born in. Of course, it's very easy to say that, but actually doing that in a culture where smaller bodies are so idealized, it's incredibly challenging. So when people lose weight, interestingly, the attention and comments often become unwanted quite quickly. And this is because no amount of weight loss ever feels good enough. And you become so preoccupied with negative thoughts about your weight and shape that you presume that others are thinking these things too. So it's quite hard to win. So to change this, you need to move beyond valuing yourself so much for how you look 
in terms of your weight and shape. You need to get in touch with your deeper values and find ways of fulfilling these to generate more productive and sustainable worth. And again, this sounds really, really easy, but of course it can be incredibly challenging. But you want to think about a kind of pie chart with different segments that make up your worth. And to have a healthy self-worth, it's great to derive it from a whole range of different attributes. So it might be partly from your work. It might be partly from your hobbies. It might be partly from your interests. It might be partly from your spirituality. It might be partly from your friendships and family and a whole list of different variables. So your pie chart, in a way, will have numerous different ways to derive worth. If you have an eating disorder or disordered eating, you are probably disproportionately valuing your worth based on your body and also while you're eating. And this is really, really, really hard to win at. And it's really hard for you to feel sustainably good in this way. So again, it can be helpful to think about what does my pie chart of worth look like now? And how would I like it to look? What would I like to change about it if I could? And to really do some reflection on that, because when you're 90 and looking back on your life, you're probably not going to be like, oh, I'm just so proud of the fact that I stayed at X weight for so many years. You're going to be thinking about your relationships, your travel, your hobbies, your interests, all the things that were really important to you. I'm going to share about my fictional client, Emily. So Emily had always felt unattractive as a child and relentlessly compared herself to her siblings, who she described as pretty and attractive. So one of Emily's sisters was academic and another one was a dancer. So Emily had always compared herself and felt that she had nothing in comparison. And she felt that these messages were being constantly reinforced as she was growing up with other people often commenting about her siblings in a positive manner. So Emily came to the conclusion herself that she was fat, grumpy and worthless and she decided to go on a diet and she initially quickly lost weight. So for the first time in a long time, Emily felt amazing and felt a sense of power and control that she'd finally found something that she was good at. She became addicted to these feelings though of accomplishment and wasn't going to give this up anytime soon. But she soon became caught in a relentless cycle of punishing dieting and relentless binge eating and purging. She was constantly chasing the initial drive to lose weight and the feelings of achievement this had brought. So in counselling, Emily began to talk about her early life and to talk about some of these deeper feelings. So it was a painful process to really touch base with those feelings of unworthiness and hopelessness. But in time, Emily realised that there were things that she was really good at. She was a very creative person. She was very kind and caring and thoughtful. So in her early environment, maybe for whatever reason, those qualities hadn't been appreciated or valued so much as maybe those of her siblings. But Emily began to recognise and accept her own qualities and value her innate uniqueness. So maybe she wasn't beautiful like a supermodel or getting grade A's in maths and English, but she was a creative person, quirky, who loved to read and draw. She blossomed and started to acknowledge her own unique worth. And the pursuit of thin in a way to feel better began to lose its appeal and to become less intense. So obviously as well, that is a process to get to that point. So I think it's 
sometimes so seductive to hold on to weight loss, changing our body as this means of deriving worth. And it can feel really, really challenging to let go of. But once we just start to derive worth from other areas of our life, once we are able to recognize our strengths, once we're able to build up our self-esteem, it can feel a little bit easier to let go of. And again, you might have to experiment and get back in touch with yourself. You may have found that you have lost your identity. You've lost your likes and dislikes through being so preoccupied with food. And maybe you never developed those for whatever reason in the first place. So as an adult, you're coming to that and needing to experiment and try different things to get to know yourself. But this can be an exciting and exploratory journey, which can bring you so much satisfaction and meaning and purpose. And you can just get things wrong. It doesn't have to be perfect. Sometimes you're going to try things and you're going to think that was not for me at all. You're going to realize I really don't like that. You start to get to know your likes and dislikes. But it's a process. And yeah, it's possible for everyone. So then last point I wanted to talk about is around beliefs, habit and identity. So it's kind of leading on a bit from what I've already talked about. So it is much more helpful if disordered eating help comes quickly. Because as human beings, we are very habit-bound creatures and we can quickly become quite entrenched in the way we do things. And we also know that the star brain starts to change and it makes things more rigid and this then makes change harder. And some research has shown that if you get help for an eating disorder in the first three years, it's much more likely that you can make changes and turn things around. Because the longer you stay in it, the more that becomes your normal, the more that becomes your identity, the more the brain is sort of changing and you can feel stuck and more rigid and, you know, within the confines of the eating disorder. Having said that, I've worked with people that have had eating disorders for 10 plus years and longer and have still recovered. So it is never too late. I really want to bang home that message. But don't wait to change. You know, take the brave step now. It's really, really worth it. So if an eating disorder has been around for a while, it can feel like it's part of you. It's what you do. And over time, this becomes part of your identity. You can become scared of who you might be without the eating disorder. You can become terrified of what will fill the void. So working on identity, think about the qualities you admire in others. Think about what really matters to you in the world. Take baby steps to build an identity separate from the eating disorder. It takes a while to do this. And I know for myself in my recovery, I was such a people pleaser and I would always just mold myself to my environment and I would take on the likes and dislikes of other people because of I wanted to kind of keep the peace, fit in, be accepted and be, you know, kind of create harmony. And of course, being able to kind of compromise and work with people and sometimes, you know, go with their preferences above yours, that can be helpful. But actually, if you're always just showing up and being accommodating and bearing your own needs, not voicing your feelings, that is not a healthy way to live. So it takes time to step out your comfort zone to experiment, as I sort of talked a bit earlier in the podcast. And it's a really sort of imperfect and bumpy road, but that's okay. And as someone myself, who I can remember a time 
you know, in my 20s where I had no idea who I was. I had no idea really of my likes and dislikes. I was completely lost in the jungle of life. I don't feel like that today. I feel like I very much know who I am. I am in touch with my feelings. I feel I have a voice. I feel I have purpose. I feel that I have balance and meaning in my life. And as someone who used to be so preoccupied with weight and food all of the time, I do not feel like that at all, 100%. So recovery is possible. You can move beyond your eating disorder, but don't be afraid to reach out and get help. Earlier intervention is going to be best. And even if you meet dead ends and your local NHS service isn't able to offer you support, do explore other options. I know for myself, I never had specialist eating disorder help, which would have been so valuable. But I had some general counselling, which was also very helpful along the road to recovery. Another thing as well is to reach out to loved ones and people close to you just to be open and honest about what's going on. Obviously, you want to be talking to people who are going to be kind, accepting and non-judgmental, but actually saying things out loud, getting the support of your loved ones, again, such a valuable step along the recovery road. So have a ponder and reflect on these three tips, three things I've talked about, see which ones you relate to. How is your eating disorder helping you cope? starting to also think about maybe how you could fulfill some of those needs in other ways. You know, I guess we can deal with our emotions in much healthier ways. We can gain self-esteem in much healthier ways. We can develop habits and identity and purpose, which are going to be much more meaningful for our overall journey in life. So I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you're not following me already, do seek me out on Instagram at The Eating Disorder Therapist. And for further support with your relationship with food, do go to the eatingdisordertherapist.co.uk. If you enjoy this podcast, I would be so grateful if you would follow, rate and review as it helps it reach so many more listeners. Thank you so much for listening today and I look forward to sharing another podcast episode with you very soon.